Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Tonight on Amazing Coincidences with Kion Wolf, we travel to Malaysia, where a housewife wrote a series of numbers on a slip of paper, placed the paper inside an empty bottle, put a cork in the bottle, and placed the bottle in a cupboard. One week later, she returned to the cupboard, opened the bottle, and there was the paper. Chance or something more? We'll also visit Wales, where Megan Twillen dropped her corgi Henry off at a local farm. She returned to the farm one year later, and a dog ran out, barking a greeting. It was Henry. Randomness or fate? Lastly, we'll take you to Nova Scotia, where Laverne McKellen left her wallet and keys on a ferry boat. Two days later, the ferry boat captain called her. He had both the wallet and the keys. Another mind-boggling ripple across the fabric of reality. And now, let's meet our first... Wait, stop the music. What is it? Kion, is it just my imagination, or are these really lame examples of coincidence? They, they barely amount to anything at all. I know. I was kind of pressed for time this week, so I didn't really track down any good cases. Why were you pressed for time? Well, it's kind of a long story, but I had this high school boyfriend, Henry McCoy, and when I was in Singapore in October, I found a necktie in a hotel room drawer, and it had his name written on the back of it, so I had to send it to him, but... Meanwhile, on the same day, Henry was staying in a hotel in Copenhagen, and he opened a drawer and found a journal I'd left there a, like a year ago, so he had to ship it back to me. And so, you know, there was just like a lot of a lot of hassle with FedEx and UPS and tracking down addresses and stuff. Kion, that's an amazing coincidence story. It is? Yes. Because the dog in the other story is also named Henry? No, because the two hotel room stories are... Uh, Kion, do you even know what a coincidence is? No, not really. I mean, the whole time I've been hosting this coincidence show, I've been meaning to ask somebody. Maybe I should listen to this show. And now he just found out there's another Colin McEnroe who also woke up naked in a shopping mall. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, that's actually kind of an amazing coincidence. So let me tell you another quick story. So there's uh, two men uh, in a Dublin bar, and they're looking at each other. Uh, they're sitting next to each other at the bar, and one of them says, you know, you look a bit familiar. Oh, where are you from? He says, I'm, I'm from uh, North Dublin. And he goes, well, that's a coincidence. I'm from North Dublin as well. Where'd you grow up? And he said, uh, Higginbotham Street. He goes, well, that's an amazing thing, because I grew up on Higginbotham Street myself. Where'd you go to school? And he says, St. Augustine's. He goes, you went to St. Augustine's too? Really? When did you get out? And he goes, in 1971. He goes, I got out in 1971. He goes, what's your mother's name? My mother's name is Mary Margaret. Goes, well, that's my mother's name, too. This is an amazing coincidence. What did your father do for a living? Well, he was a, a pipe fitter down at the, the shipyards. Goes, that's incredible. My dad, too, was a, a pipe fitter down at the shipyards. Uh, this is an incredible coincidence. And just then another fellow walks into the bar and says to the bartender, anything going on tonight? And the bartender says, well, the Gogan twins are drunk again. 
Um, so there's a, a story about people who think they're seeing coincidences when, in fact, they're, they're not. Uh, but we see these things happen all the time. We have conversations about them all the time. They make up a huge fabric of our conversation. And sometimes they have frivolous meaning and frivolous consequences. And sometimes they have dire consequences. We'll, we'll talk to you today about, for example, uh, someone sent to prison uh, for the murder of her children based on um, uh, sort of a, an unmathematical understanding uh, of coincidence. Uh, we'll talk to you about decisions that get made to uh, ground planes because uh, too many of them have crashed right in a row. Uh, we make decisions like this all the time without necessarily understanding, A, how the math of it works, and B, how our own minds process this kind of information. So well, we've uh, gathered some guests here uh, to talk to you today. Uh, and so joining us right now is uh, David J. Hand. Uh, he uh, and one of our other guests are joining us from studios in London. Uh, he is Professor Emeritus of Mathematics at Imperial College in London, as well as a fellow of the British Academy. Uh, he's the author of The Improbability Principle, Why Coincidences, Miracles, and Rare Events Happen Every Day. Uh, Magda Osman, a senior lecturer in experimental cognitive psychology uh, at Queen Mary University uh, of London, is by coincidence in the very same studio. Actually, we invited both of them there, but she's the author of Future Minded, The Psychology of Agency and Control. A little bit later, we're also going to talk uh, about how all of these things play out in one of their favorite um, Petri dishes, and that, of course, is the world of gambling. Uh, but we're going to talk about uh, everyday life and not-so-everyday life. To begin with, uh, if you have your own questions or um, unexplainable coincidences, you can call us at 860-275-7266. We're live here in the afternoon, 860-275-7266. Or you can tweet us at WNPR Collins. So uh, let's get the conversation going right now. And I'm going to start with um, David J. Hand. And it's usually good, I think, to start with some kind of case in point, some kind of um, object lesson that we can uh, we can go through. So you begin your book with a story about the Anthony Hop- about Anthony Hopkins uh, and, and a project he's working on and a book that he needs. And that's as good as a place to to start, I think, at just walking us through some of the principles that need to be invoked here. So, uh, David J. Hand, tell us the story again about Anthony Hopkins. Okay, Uh, so Anthony Hopkins was starring in a film of the book The Girl from Petrovka and he, this was some years ago, and he travelled down to London to buy a copy of the book Um, but he couldn't find a copy of the book so he he gave up uh, and he was sitting uh, near a tube station waiting for a tube to take him home again and he looked at the seat next to him and found uh, saw that there was a book there. He picked it up and saw it was in fact a copy of the book The Girl from Petrovka but there's, in fact, more to it than this. He, he looked through the book, and there were annotations in it. And later, when he met the author, George Pfeiffer, he showed him the book, and it turned out that this was the very same book that the author, George Pfeiffer, had been annotating um, to convert the British into, uh, language into American spellings. Um, and he had lent it to a friend who had lost it somewhere on the tubes, six months before Anthony Hopkins found it, and somehow the book had found itself through space and time right next to Anthony Hopkins and back to George Pfeiffer. So when we tell each other the sto- these stories, often we, a phrase that we use without really expecting an answer to it are, is, what are the odds? What are the, what are the odds of this happening? <laughs> um, but in fact, that's a question that you really do want to explore, right? What are the odds of something happening? And do those odds make it completely improbable? 
Yeah, that's that's the the key question, of course. Now, for this particular incident, this happening to uh, Anthony Hopkins, George Pfeiffer, the girl from Petrovka, very, very small. But if you put it in a broader context, if you put it in the context of all the books which are lost and found and so on, then it becomes not all that surprising that this sort of incident, this sort of coincidence, occurs sometime. In fact, there there seems to be a, a sort of sub-genre of coincidence stories relating to lost and found books. Yeah, actually, I, I've read other ones uh, as well. So th- th- now we're getting in. There's sort of two principles at the beginning of your book that clash up against, or they don't clash, they rub up against each other. They exert some friction on e- uh, each other. One of them is what you call the improbability principle. I mean, you've just alluded to it, but explain what it is that you mean by okay. it. In a sentence, the improbability principle says that highly improbable events are commonplace. They happen all the time. And superficially, at first, that sounds like a contradiction. You know, if things are improbable, how can they happen very often? It doesn't seem to make sense. But in fact, it does. And if you, what the book does is tease apart why this is the case, and it does it through five basic sort of mathematical, probabilistic, scientific laws. Uh, the law of inevitability of truly large numbers of selection, the law of the probability lever and the law of near enough. And these five laws form a sort of braid, a rope, if you like, which together is the improbability principle telling you why uh, highly improbable events uh, happen all the time. Now, the, the, the other principle that this is kind of bashing and clacking into is what's called Borel's Law. Explain what that is. Borel's Law basically... Uh, uh, it's named after a very eminent mathematician, Emile Borel, who has lots of mathematical concepts named after him, which says that if something is sufficiently improbable, you should regard it as essentially impossible. You know, for instance, if it's so improbable that you wouldn't expect it to happen in the whole history of the universe, it would be irrational to go out walking along the streets expecting it to happen to you all the time. You should treat it as essentially impossible. That's Borel's law. And and it does sound like that conflicts with the improbability principle, which says you should expect improbable improbable events to happen all the time. But the book points out and shows why these are not, in fact, uh, contradictions. Right. So one of the things that we do, and, and, and Magda, I think I can drag you into this conversation here. One of the things that we do is artificially inflate the level of probability, right? So, I mean, okay, in that story that we just told, I'll, I'll put it, I'll lay it out a couple of different ways. If it happened to me, I would think that it was uh, just this amazingly improbable thing, right? That I'm a guy, I'm on the subway, I need this book, and suddenly I haven't been able to find it, and suddenly there it is sitting in a seat next to me. Not only is it the book that I need, it's a specific copy of the book annotated by somebody I know. That's an amazing story. It's also an amazing story the way that David told it, because it happened to Anthony Hopkins, and he's not just anybody. He's somebody we all know. He's special. So once again, we, we crank up the odds um, against something like ha- like that happening because it happened to Anthony Hopkins, right? We're making all kinds of assumptions that may have nothing to do with math, but everything everything to do with about how we see ourselves. Uh, well, uh, I'd say all of that has to do with maths. Yeah. Uh, it's just the way we try to interpret the maths and maybe a slightly biased uh so what you're actually referring to is uh at least what's known in psychology is egocentrism so it's an egocentric kind of bias so that is if if it happens often when we experience coincidences and they happen to us uh we tend to inflate the rarity of those events uh, whereas if we hear the same kinds of coincidences happening to someone else, then we sort of downgrade it. So that's why I've sort of 
uh, you know, it's known as egocentrism because we tend to think of ourselves as unique and uh, our experiences, the collection of experiences make us particularly um, special. And so we that sort of filters the way in which we actually interpret the events that happen to us. Right. So if, I, if somebody told me that story and it's about some random person, he needed a book, he found it on the train, uh, I don't think I would really care that much about it. Uh, and and I, it wouldn't necessarily strike me as all that remarkable. But somehow or other, the idea of it happening to me, obviously, it's much more important, yeah. much more rare, much more remarkable. Therefore, all the odds go out the window. Well, I mean, David, Hand, I just want to go back to the... Um, Borel's Law, because Borel's Law does invite us to do one thing, which is if, in fact, we really are looking at one of those things that um, I mean, we, we have a rule about this in journalism, actually, that's very similar, which says, uh, I mean, the way that it was told to me is if somebody walks into your newspaper city room and says uh, that he's just want, run a mile in three minutes, he didn't. Um, so you yeah, sh- you yeah. should you shouldn't waste a lot of your time. Your resources are finite. In turn, you shouldn't go out to the track with him and try to get him to reproduce it. You shouldn't. You just shouldn't spend a lot of time on this because it didn't happen. Uh, and you've got other things to do you, that you would be better served doing. And so this is yeah. one of the ways we use Borel's law, right? That uh, exactly, yeah. exactly. Francis Bacon, the philosopher, had something to say about this. He, he was talking about miracles and people coming back to life after being after dying and so on. And he said, what you do is you basically balance the probabilities. What do you think is more likely, that this guy ran the mile in three minutes or that he's lying? But the, the other thing that we have to do with Borel's law is say, well, let, let's say that, in fact, something is reported, a coincidence is reported that really does seem to be one of those things that never happens. Uh, I mean, then we have to run through a bunch of possibilities. First of all, let's throw out the possibility that we're being lied to. Let's throw okay. out the guy who, who walks into the city room. Now we have to sort of say, well, is there some other reason why this happened, yeah. right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a sort of this illustrates the law of the, what I call the law of the probability lever. There's some other reason. Perhaps we've misunderstood things or perhaps there are uh, our assumptions are wrong or things actually didn't take place in exactly the sort of way we thought they did, which changed the probability and made it much more likely that things could have happened as we saw them. Um, Incidentally, can yeah. I just comment yeah. that there's a corollary to the Anthony Hopkins, George Pfeiffer story. <laughs> he heard me on, on, on a radio show talking about that particular story and contacted me, emailed me and said, yes, that's exactly how it happened. And the last time I was in New York, we met up for lunch and exchanged copies of our books. <laughs> <laughs> What are the odds of that happening? Oh, wait a yeah. minute. You, you actually... <laughs> well, <flint>. well. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and Magda, another thing that we do, I'm going to come back to um, some of the, the, the math uh, of this in just a second, but another thing we do is kind of reverse engineer things that happen to us. And um, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about that in connection with romantic love. You don't have to go to too many dinner parties before you meet a couple who regard one another as each other's soulmates, and they have a story to tell you. And the story is the story of how they met. And once again, it is, um, it may go back to that whole principle of egocentrism, but what they'll say is, well, if I hadn't taken that bus and I was late because I had to go back and get an umbrella, and then I would have gotten on the other bus and I wouldn't have met her, and she's allergic to shellfish, so she was going to see her allergist that day. If she hadn't had clams the night before, she wouldn't have been on that bus. In other words, one of the things that we do, we talk 
cognitive we do, particularly with, I think, in that area of life, is explain our life story in terms of this impossible coincidence, which absolutely brought us together, uh, once again, against all odds. <laughs> well, uh, yes. So what happens in those kinds of instances, and actually I'd argue that actually that doesn't count as a coincidence. No. Because <laughs> what what will typically happen is... No, no, I mean, it's actually quite an important point because in those kinds of instances, we're coming up with a, a causal explanation. So we're saying fate is the thing that brought us together. I mean, whether we think of whether generally we think that that's a plausible mechanism or not is a separate issue. But for the point of the what you count as a coincidence, I might not count as a coincidence. So you might sort of think, oh, well, that's laughable. Yeah, all of these sort of sequences of events, they're just chance events. They're just combinations of chance. Uh, whereas from my point of view, I've explained that away as, you know, fated romantic love. So I've already come up with an explanation. So I'm not going to see that as a coincidence. I'm going to see that as we are determined to actually be together. So what kind of model of the world, so how my sets of beliefs are used to explain things, is going to determine whether I think, see things as coincidental or not? Yeah, there, there are so events. Uh, so, for instance, let me let me put it this way: Say I had a dream, uh, and um, it in the dream that there was a the train crashed, which I usually take in the morning to work. Now, uh, the next day I get up late, and then I miss the train, and the train crashed. Now, so if I had a belief of the world in which our premonitions exist, and I actually believe that premonitions premonition type dreams are there then I wouldn't see that as a coincidence that's merely evidence to suggest that actually I was right in thinking that dreams can predict the future now if I don't actually have that kind of representation of the world then I'm going to see this as something very different so I might interpret this as just wow that's an amazing coincidence that's just a series of chance events that happen to be very fortuitous for me so what kind of mental sort of explanations we come up with, what kinds of beliefs we have are going to determine whether we see a series of patterns uh, of very rare, unique events as coincidence or not. Well, it's so wonderful. Uh, we couldn't have planned it better that you gave that train example because I know the mathematician who's sitting there next to you is rustling away <laughs> because he's got another thing. He's got another way he wants to talk to you about that. And it's in terms of selectivity, right? Uh, this, the, the whole yeah. notion of premonition, one of the, the examples that you give, uh, David J. Hinn, include Caligula uh, having yes, supposedly right. dreamed assassination attempts yeah. on three occasions before assassinations. Lincoln also supposedly had, having had a prophetic dream. So what's wrong? <laughs> with that yeah. whole sequence so so uh, 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 that's a great example that Magda's given um, what it fails to take into account is I mean not her explanation which is spot on <laughs> but what the general sort of discussion ch fails to take into account is the number of times you've had a dream that the train would crash and then it didn't and there's no particular reason for you to remember those dreams they're just dreams which pass but if then it, it happens. Then you put the two together and you think, wow, what an amazing thing. I had a, a, a premonition. Uh, my dream was premonitory. Anyway. Um, <laughs> um, but you don't notice all the, all the other things which didn't predict the train crash. Um, so you're sort of selecting the data after the fact, if you like. 
It's right. called the law of selection. Yeah, you you need a full sample of all the dreams you've ever it, had, it, exactly, and, and yeah. whether they came out uh, true or not. <laughs> all right, let's um, grab a quick break here. We're talking to David J. Uh, Han. We're talking to Magda Osman. We're talking about coincidences. What's a moment where you've had sort of a coincidence happen? I was in eighth grade. I played rec soccer in our town, and I ended up being so focused on the game that I collided with this other person, and the whole audience laughed. Now, years go by, and I became friends with a girl, and I was telling her this story about how I had hit the soccer ball and embarrassed myself, and she looked at me with surprise and said, that same thing happened to me. So it turns out that three or four years before we even met each other, we had actually collided over a soccer ball. A lot of the time, I'll be talking about something with someone, and then five minutes after, that thing instantly comes up on like the television. I, I get this fear that I accidentally predict the future. So I could be like talking about my friends or whatever, and then that friend just pops up out of nowhere. Like they know that I just talked about them. I don't give all the power to like a person upstairs, but maybe that's just how time works. All right, so you're listening to people uh, try to explain coincidences and talk about coincidences that they have experienced. Uh, we're talking right now to David J. Hand, whose book is The Improbability Principle, Why Coincidences, Miracles, and Rare Events Happen Every Day, and to Magda Osman. Uh, she is the author of um, uh, of studies about how we, in fact, uh, interpret these things. She's the author of Future Minded, The Psychology of Agency and Control. They're both joining us from studios um, in London. Uh, I'm going to... Um, Walk the two of you through. This is another of David's examples, but I think each of you can do some interesting work with it. So, um, David J. Han, one of the things that you talk about is numerology, and very specifically, uh, you write about Yuri Geller. He's the guy who bends spoons with his mind, uh, but that, of course, is a different show. I think we might have even already done that show. <laughs> but um, so, but what he talks about is the um, the coincidence of the number eleven and eleven eleven, and he's got all these explanations uh, for ways in which this has occurred in his life. Life, and then he takes September 11th and kind of numerologizes us, uh, it for us, so that we can see all of the ways in which 1111 uh, or various forms of this number uh, have had bearing upon uh, this horrible event. So, so what's going on uh, there? Or what's the fallacy? What's the law that Geller's not noticing? He's he's looking for examples where this number is connected with some other events. You could do it for any number, and people have done that sort of thing for other numbers. In his particular case, also, he has a, a large sort of media audience, and so he goes out, he puts it on his website and things and says, look for this. And lots of people then um, write in to say, look, they've also had a coincidence involving the number 11. So he's getting a lot of these, but it's selection again. He, he's, he's focusing on instances where this is connected to something, ignoring the vast, much vaster number of cases which aren't connected. Okay, and the other thing that's happening, um, Magda, is we, we all want control over our environment, right? We want we want to know that life isn't completely random, and we want to know that's, that that if we if we knew everything, or if we knew a certain amount of arcana, you know, maybe we wouldn't be in the building that gets hit by the planes. Maybe there are actual ways of knowing things, or or maybe there's some kind of divine or occult hand that affects all this, so it's not completely meaningless. Are, are these the things that sort of kick in and make a claim like Geller's attractive to people? 
Um, well, uh, let me answer this question by maybe getting to the point of what, at least psychologically, counts as a coincidence. Mm-hmm. And so I would argue, actually, that uh, our experiences of coincidences are part and parcel of our psychological makeup. So that is that um, they help. So the way we make sense of the world is by detecting regularities. So regularities uh, carry very important information um, because they tell us something about the structure of the world. So what we're doing is trying to make sense of the world around us. And as you say, it's important to actually make sense because then you can control what goes on around you. So that's why those things are actually important. Now, what happens with a coincidence is you're detecting a regularity. Uh, it might be particularly rare or, or sort of unique or interesting and surprising to you. Uh, now, the first thing that happens, at least mentally, is that you're going to sort through your brain to try and make sense of what caused that ha- to happen. Now, the point at which you can actually come up with an explanation for those very rare and interesting events means that it's not a coincidence. At that point, you're actually given an explanation. Now, the point at which it becomes a coincidence, at least psychologically, is that any causal explanation you come up with is less likely or seemingly less plausible than chance. And so then what happens is you say to yourself, wow, okay, that was a coincidence. I mean, sometimes they're mundane and sometimes they can be incredible. And the incredible ones are the ones that really force us to actually think, wow, what's going on in the world? So it's things like the kinds of things that Yuri Geller might be picking up and sort of trying to uh, make into something that's seemingly interesting and revealing of special forces in the world um, that seem incredible, that then invite a lot of discussion. So if they're sort of very mundane kinds of uh, events that happen, actually low probability events, but don't seem particularly interesting, then we're not really going to sort of have a discussion about them because no one really cares. It's just the elaboration of possible insights into the structure of the world that then become interesting for all of us. Right. And, and back to that egocentrism point, we heard uh, one of the speakers uh, there on the, the interviews on the street that came back uh, as we came back from that break. And the guy was sort of saying, well, I think about something and then I see it on television and I wonder if I caused it. That's sort of the that's the Truman Show um, yeah. hypothesis, right? <laughs> that all of reality is somehow or other a reflection of what's going on with me. Indeed. Mm. Indeed. Can, can I just say that I entirely agree with what Magda just said? I I sometimes say that coincidence is a part mathematics, part human. To be a coincidence, it's got to have some sort of meaning to the person observing it, or, or they just don't notice it, if you like. All right, I th- we've got a couple, we've got a call here and we've got a tweet, and I think they may kind of go together, and I, and I know that they do touch upon something that David says in his book. So let's try this. Uh, David from Wallingford, hi, what's on your mind? Hi, David. Hi, Magda. And I, hello, Colin. How are you guys doing? We're fine, we're fine. Um, <laughs> hello. <laughs> So I'm trying to manufacture my own coincidence right now, I guess. Um, for the past three or four months, I've been doing hikes three or four times a week at Sleeping Giant, and I'm currently right there. And the challenge I have to myself is I would like to be hit in the head with an acorn, and it just hasn't <laughs> happened. 
<laughs> All right. So we can actually help okay. you there. And, and David, I'm going to take that and I'm going to fold it into a tweet that we've received that is right. It's almost ripped from your book. Michael tweets, Lee Trevino, he's a famous golfer, got hit by lightning three times. Uh, doesn't doesn't get <laughs> yeah. much better than that. Actually, that has two yeah. things from David's book because there's a lot of golf in David's book <laughs> and uh, uh, people getting hit by lightning. So so yeah. so there's some things going on here. David wants to be hit in the head by an acorn. And we we know that people get hit in the head in very odd ways. One of the things you mentioned in, a, in, a, uh, in your book is a, a tragic uh, instance in which someone fi- fires a gun into the air and the bullet lands on someone else's head and kills them, right? So yeah. what can we yeah. tell David about uh, getting hit in the head by something or struck okay. by lightning for that matter? Yeah. So, so uh, shooting a bullet into the air and, and having it land on someone when they come down is, again, a product of the law of truly large numbers. This happens a lot. of People shoot a lot of bullets into the air, and sooner or later they're going to hit someone when they come down. And when that happens, of course, it's reported. The Lee Trevino and the Acorn examples, the reason, of course, that Lee Trevino has been hit by lightning three times is because he keeps giving presenting himself with an opportunity to be struck by lightning. For people like us who work in offices or, or sit in recording studios or whatever, the chance of getting struck by lightning even once is very, very slim, let alone three times. But he wanders, Lee Trevino wanders around in open golf courses with metal rods in his hand. He's just asking for it in a sense, so that's not surprising. But that tells you how the other David can increase his chance of being struck by a falling acorn. What he's got to do is spend a lot of time hanging around underneath oak trees. Well, the other thing that that's in there, I think, if I, if I understand your, your work correctly, uh, David Hand, is um, the law of inevitability. I mean, we know that things do happen, right? We know that acorns yeah. fall and hit things. We know that lightning uh-huh. strikes. That, that, that's among these five laws that cr- make it possible for the – or make it the case that the improbable is actually rather it's commonplace. It is, and it's, it's certain, in fact, yeah. yeah. I mean, the the, uh, the I think one of the examples I give in the book is the straightforward one. Uh, the chance that a golf ball will land on any particular blade of grass is very small, but it's certain to land on some blade of grass. And I think I quote uh, an Australian um, astronomer uh, named Vlahos who's describing a NASA satellite falling to Earth and who says, it's very difficult to tell exactly where it will land, but we're certain that it will land somewhere. And that really sums up the law of inevitability. Yes, he's right. It's certain that it will land somewhere. It's inevitable. Now, Magda, you know, when we run into Borel's law, we run into this, uh, uh, this, this, this moment where something that should never happen, something that's so improbable that it should never happen, it happens. So we've got a bunch of different options here. I mean, when we've ticked through a few of them, the Truman Show option, uh, the, 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 the possibility that we could call David Hand and say, what am I missing here? You know, which, which mathematical law have I failed to notice that made this more likely than never because it did happen? But another thing that we can do is simply believe, right? I mean, you divide people up between believers and skeptics. Talk about that. (laughs) Uh, Yes, but uh, I'm not uh, making a value judgment of either. (laughs) So (laughs) let's just put it this way. I'm not... uh, I could get into very sticky ground very quickly if Mm. I start saying who's irrational and who isn't. Um, so just actually just one point to follow up on the the acorn story so um what ca- what wouldn't count as a coincidence is if the hikers going around 
and uh, he's sort of standing under enough trees that eventually, as he's thinking about uh, an acorn falling on his head, the acorn falls on his head. And you think, well, you've sort of increased the chances of it happening, but that yeah, it's sort of a very, very lame coincidence if you want to call it that because you've already you already are increasing the chances of it happening so it's not it doesn't become it's sort of it's not rare it's not surprising you're almost sort of you can explain it away now what would be surprising is if he'd only just happened to thought to have thought about it once Mm-hmm. and happened to walk past an acorn tree and at the same time he'd thought, wow, what are the chances of an acorn falling on my head and then the acorn falling on his head? Uh, then he would think, wow, okay, it that that seems pretty coincidental but I'm not psychically linked to the acorn that I made it fall on my head so that probably just means it's a coincidence, right? So, that, so it's just... The, the reason why I say this is sort of to clarify what really counts, at least psychologically, is a coincidence and what isn't. So simply sort of amazing events, uh, rare events, don't count in and of themselves as coincidences. So actually, I, I've forgotten what you actually well, uh, asked me. I was so, asking about believers versus skeptics. And I'll give you... A, ah, yes, OK. I, if you want, yeah, go so, ahead, you, yeah, you take it. Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry. Uh, so the... So here's what I will say about what connects believers and non-believers. So believers are, say, people who, uh, and this is this is sort of labels that are, I've inherited from my <laughs> disciplines. This isn't just necessarily me making these sort of labels. So people who believe are ones who have sort of interest uh, in understanding the world from the point of view of paranormal or supernatural or you know, fate and luck and all of those kinds of things. Skeptics are the ones who are uh, scientists who tend to assume that there's a sort of uh, you know some things can be ex- explained away and that there is a, a sort of a, a causal mechanism and if there isn't then it's just chance so they're not going to appeal to paranormal beliefs and things like that so the 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 thing that connects both of them is the psychology in which we actually spot patterns right so the that's so that's a rational mechanism right we can't live in a world effectively if we don't detect patterns mm-hmm. right so so that in itself is extremely important because r- patterns imply regularity and regularity implies a causal mechanism causal mechanisms allows us to predict and then from that we can control right, right? so so, so if i never looked both ways and I, when i stepped into the street um uh, i would i would get hit by a car and, and if i didn't if nobody learned from that you know yeah. that there was a connection between those two things <laughs> and that my likelihood of getting hit by a car went way up because of that then i would be that would be an example of never detecting a pattern Absolutely. which is extremely useful yeah. i want to we have so much ground to cover in so little time it's killing me but i want to talk very quickly about sample size and that law, law of very large numbers because it's that's really important too in terms of assessing how improbable something is so you know and and the standard model really for this is and you use it a, a lot in your book david uh, is the uh, the monkeys and the typewriter so we know that the monkeys and the typewriters and typing out the works of shakespeare that's Im- if we got all of the monkeys in the world and got them all typewriters and somehow or they got them to type which would be a feat all by itself uh <laughs> typing out the, the works of shakespeare that's impossible that's in burrell's category it's so, simply it's, not going yeah. to happen if if yeah, we that's it, not going to happen in many hundred million times 
explains the history of the universe. So that number is so small, you, you would be totally insane to regard that as possible. Right. Yeah. And if we got, and if we got t- 10 monkeys and somehow or other one of them typed out the title of your book, that would be one of those things where we would need to look at that and sort of say, what else is going on here? How did it happen that somebody typed out the, the improbability principle and possibly... Yeah, I mean, the probability of that happening is also very, very small, so I'd regard it as impossible, but, but it's not as small as the other one. Yeah. Right. And so, but a lot of what we talk about is kind of in the middle ground, right? If we got a million monkeys and yeah. a million typewriters and one of them typed out David J. Hand. Well, it would be kind of exciting that a monkey typed out David J. Hand, but maybe not. Sample size or that law of numbers is is where a lot of this stuff lives. Maybe you'd like to say more about that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The law of truly large numbers basically says if you've got something which has got a very tiny probability of occurring, but you give it enough opportunities, a truly large number of opportunities, then it becomes almost inevitable. That's really what it says. And this is exactly what you're saying with the monkeys. We get a large enough Mm. collection of monkeys, then sooner or later they'll type out the sentence or whatever that we're aiming for. Um, I just want to give one other really... Why are we talking about this? I want to give one really serious example of this, uh, and then we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Uh, Magda and Mark Bowman are going to walk you through all of the things that your mind does when you gamble uh, and all of the things that you don't really maybe quite understand about what's happening uh, when you gamble. But before we do this, David J. Hand, one of the uh, wrenching uh, and, and very serious examples in the book involved the case of a woman who was sentenced to, to life in prison for murder because two of her children Executively had died of sudden in- infant death syndrome. And the testimony at the trial talked about the, the improbability of this happening and, and just by chance. In other words, you know, once again, what are the odds that this, that this yeah. just happened, that there was no agency involved, that she wasn't a murderer? And, and it's pretty likely that that argument made a trial convicted her. And you talk about how that argument failed to understand some of these basic principles we're talking about. I'll, I'll let you pick up the story there. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It was a, a, a um, a woman, a lawyer named um, Sally Clark, in fact. Um, and when she was tried after the, her two children had died, um, evidence was produced by a medical doctor, not a statistician, who basically multiplied together, regarded, multiplied together the events that each child would die, regarded them as independent events. That was a mistake. He'd, he'd fundamentally understood the, the nature of, of the mechanism, if you like. If you corrected for that and did the correct statistical to correct probability calculation, the balance of probabilities shifted from her being more likely to have committed murder to more likely to be innocent. Um, and it, it's a particularly tragic case because um, if, if eventually, after statisticians had got involved and pointed out uh, this um, error, uh, she was released, the evidence that the, the, the verdict was overturned, she was released, but she died soon after, after spending her time in prison. So a particularly tragic case. Not the only case like that. There was a, a similar sort of case involving a, a nurse called Lucia de Burke in the Netherlands who happened to be present, present when a number of um, patients died. And again, an elementary probability calculation, I should say miscalculation, based on that, uh, produced the chance that she would have been present at all those deaths as one in like 340-odd million um, but again, it was a, a mistake. It didn't take into account all the mechanisms involved. And if you did the correct probability calculation, it comes out to be one in 25. A- and her guilty verdict was also overturned when the correct probability calculations were done. This is an example of the law of the probability lever, which basically says slightly incorrect assumptions 
or, or your model being slightly, your theory being slightly incorrect can have a dramatic impact on probabilities. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick, quick break. We're, at the end here, we're going to take you, uh, metaphorically anyway, to the gambling casino where some of your ideas about probability may not work all that well. Do you believe in coincidence? Do you believe in fate? Okay, monkeys, as you know, we've gathered an infinite number of you so that you on an infinite number of typewriters can produce the works of Shakespeare. How many of you are really psyched up about this project? (laughs) All right, I've been getting a lot of questions from you about bathroom breaks. Basically, it's every four hours, and please do actually use the bathroom, okay? (laughs) And just to be totally clear, you're all waiving the worldwide right to publish in other formats in other languages, including formats readable by the visually impaired, the right to give third-party permission, and the right to enter into agreements with reproduction rights organizations for the collective licensing of rights, okay? (laughs) Okay, so noted by screeching. Okay, one last thing. Although we do have an infinite number of monkeys, we're a little short on typewriters. We've got basically two options. How many of you would be willing to double up on a typewriter? And how many of you would be willing to go to Brooklyn right now and steal all the typewriters the hipsters have? (laughs) All right, that's a consensus. Today's show is produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Nate Gagnon and Zachary LaSala. Greg Hill appeared in the intro, and there's also a guy who tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and his name is Greg Hill, too. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bill Curry. Oh, my God. For show pages, articles, and audios of the staff of Here and Now trying to figure out whether it would be a coincidence if something was both here and now, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, authors Colin McCann and David Mitchell. And now, back to Colin. All right. So we've been talking to uh, David J. Hand, uh, author of The Improbability Principle, and Magda Osman, author of Future Minded, uh, which is about the psychology of agency and control. We're adding to the conversation Mark Bullman. Uh, he is chair of the Mathematics and Computer Science Department at Albion College in Michigan. Uh, he is the author of Basic Gambling Mathematics, uh, the numbers behind the neon. <laughs> so he joins us now here in a state that has two uh, casinos. Um, so, uh, Mark Bullman, the world is full of people who are going to the casinos, uh, and they're going there uh, not uh, probably understanding a lot of the math that you understand. And what they do think is that somehow or other they they can influence the outcome. They can do better. They can beat the house somehow. So what's the big, what are the biggest mistakes they make? What are the biggest misassumptions that they have? I think part of it is, um, as I tell my students, not understanding that the casinos don't pay their light bill by giving away a lot of money to winners. The games are all rigged against them. That's how the the rules of the game and the payoffs are set, so that the casino has an advantage going in. So so there's that. And and then they probably also assume that there – I mean, look, rationally we know – we've been talking about coincidences for the entire show. But we know that blowing on the dice, that wearing a certain 
pair of socks, that eating chicken before you leave, that none of that's going to, to, to affect anything. But uh, and, and maybe actually I should quickly throw it over to, over to Magda. But so, Magda, why do people do all that stuff when, in fact, it's so maladaptive? I mean, Mark is just going to tell us in a second how much money it's going to cost them having that stupid belief. So, so where's the adaptive part of that? Uh, yes, actually, it's interesting that you say is, yeah, that there is an adaptive element. So, um, as I said, the before the the interesting thing about how we try to understand the world and and work within the world is to try and predict what's going on. And then from that to try to control what's going on. So our sense of agency is extremely important because we have to feel as if we have a capacity to affect the world around us uh, in order to predict and control it. So now that... The odd thing that happens is when we're in sort of these kinds of particular situations where there's zero contingency. So this is sort of gambling scenarios where, you know, what actually happens and what you do is completely disconnected. But the problem is gambling scenarios are set up in ways that actually invite and seduce us into feeling as if we do have some kind of agency because we pull levers, press buttons. And when we pull levers and press buttons in the real world, we tend to we tend to produce something that actually does happen that's predictable so that also means that we sort of feel as if we could do something and produce an effect that's desirable like win money that's brilliant i just never thought about that before but you're absolutely right they set it up to mirror those kinds of real life situations so mark bowman during the term you teach your students the math of all this stuff and then towards the end of the term as i understand it you do take them to a gambling environment um have they by that time internalized all your lessons or or are they seduced in all the ways that magda's talking about I think it's it's a 50-50 mix of that. Um, certainly they're seduced because for a lot of them they're 18, 19 years old. It's their first time in a casino. What I like to see is they're at least gravitating toward the better games as we've looked at them in the, in the course of the semester. Um, a big example, the casino we go to, the Soaring Eagle in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, offers both American roulette with the zero and double zero on the wheel and European roulette with only a single zero. We've talked about how the house advantage in European roulette is about half, and that's the table they flock to. And when I when I make them write up a paper on their experience, they frequently will mention, I don't know why people were gambling on the American wheel. What, didn't they realize that, that it was a better game just you know 10 steps away? There are also ways in which um, gambling enterprises force you to adopt less probable strategies or or, or I mean, for well, or for yeah. example, um, you know, I mean, in the last Kentucky Derby, not that that's totally a, a thing of chance, but I realized I couldn't make any money if I bet on American Pharaoh. Right. I, I was mm-hmm. better off picking a lot of other con- uh, combinations and boxing them somehow. But Correct. I was really depriving myself of the best chance to make money. And part of that is because you don't hear about someone who went to the casino and came out $2 ahead. The casinos <laughs> don't publicize the small winners, but somebody hits a jackpot on a slot machine for $8,000, you'll see their picture, you'll hear about it. The attention-getting stuff, the things that we're drawn to as humans are, are the big wins, and the casinos make very sure that you're going you're gonna to hear about the big winners. And, the, of course, the other thing they do is dribble out small rewards, too, in order to Correct. keep us going. Explain what Powerball uh, does. Well, Powerball, of course, the, the attention-getting jackpot is the, is the grand prize, the one that builds week by week as, uh, as nobody wins it. Now, they've recently changed the rules to make it harder to win that in the, with the idea that 
bigger jackpots attract more gamblers. They've given a trade-off in that with the new distribution of ping pong balls, it is slightly easier to win some of the smaller prizes. The kind of thing that, oh, I won $80, I'm going to try again because now I'm gambling with the house's money. Or I came so close, if the Powerball had just dropped, I would have been a multimillionaire. So the, the frequent small winnings are intended to, to kind of keep you coming back, to certainly to make it fun, because if it's not fun, what's the point? But also to give you the feeling that maybe the next time it will be me. Right. And this is a place where Magda's psychology and then the math of you, uh, Mark, and you, David, they, they, they coincide or they cross swords, sort of, because nobody fantasizes about what they would do if they won $100 at Powerball. People fantasize about getting, you know, screw you money, you know, or right. they can sort of walk away from everything. But so they <laughs> fantasize about the thing that's so remote. And, but, and then they're seduced by the reality that's smaller and, and much uh, closer. Um, maybe quickly also to that end, you should explain why in Powerball you should pick numbers higher than 31. Right, because every Powerball combination has the same chance of being chosen. It's not, uh, it's not the case that some numbers are more likely than others, but what you want to do if you're going to play Powerball is arrange it so that you're very less likely to share the prize. And the way to do that is to pick a set of numbers that nobody else has chosen. Many, many people will pick numbers based on birthdays. You know, my mother doesn't play Powerball, but if you ask her, she'll say she uses 3, 9, 20, 24, 30, and 31, which are the birthdays of her six children. And if a lot of people are betting birthdays, if a lot of birthdays hit, there's the increased chance that you're going to have to share the prize. Now, $100 million split two ways is still a lot of money, but it would be better not to have to share. So in picking lotto, lotto numbers, you want a higher sum and basically one number less than 31 is all you can really justify if you want to avoid sharing the money. Um, David J. Hand, really quickly, because we're running out of time, but one of the things you cover in your book are these quote-unquote scandals in which uh, two different Powerballs come up with the same six numbers or, you know, three days apart, the same Powerball comes up with the exact same uh, three, six numbers. That's impossible, right? Right, except for, again, it's the law of truly large numbers. If you look at the number of lotteries there are around the world, uh, which are drawn week after week, sometimes day after day, you would expect this sort of thing to occur. And there are several incidents, recorded incidences, when they have occurred. But exactly as you say, when they do, they tend to provoke a sort of media storm and possible accusations of fraud, although you should expect that sort of thing to happen occasionally. All right. We're absolutely out of time. Uh, David J. Hand's book is The Improbability Principle. Magda's, uh, uh, Magda Osmond's is uh, future-minded. Never play poker against Mark Bowman. He is the author of Basic Gambling Mathematics, The Numbers Behind the Neon. I wouldn't even sit at the same blackjack table with him. Thanks to all of you, and thanks to Josh Nalea for conceiving this show. You are so totally hot. Thanks, you are too. We should go out sometime. Yeah, okay. Let me get my phone. Do you think I can have your number? Huh, that would be such a coincidence. <laughs> 